I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, welcome to All Things Policy. This is Mekha Bharti. I'm a research analyst at the Takshila Institution's China Studies Program. In today's episode, we're talking about China's Foreign Minister and State Councilor Wang Yi's visit to Pacific Island countries. To discuss on this, we have today with us Manoj Kevalamani. Manoj is fellow at the Takshila Institution and he is also chair of Indo-Pacific Program at Takshila. Welcome, Manoj. Hi, Megha. Thank you. So. As I said, Wangi is on tour of Pacific Island countries from 26 May to June 4. Uh, where he's scheduled to visit eight countries, and uh, he's also scheduled to interact with leaders of three countries virtually. And he's also slated to host second China-Pacific Island countries uh, foreign minister meeting in Fiji. So this visit has been widely covered and uh, has generated a lot of interest in media too. And it's being touted as one of the most important visit this year for Wangi. So, why do you think this visit is important, or why China is emphasizing on this visit a lot? Hey, I think we need to look at this uh, visit in the context of China's broader approach to the Indo-Pacific region. This is another step in Beijing trying to step out of its near periphery and try to create, you know. not just use its economic influence for political objectives but also from a security uh, you know expansion of its security footprint and i think that's what we are seeing here today china has one overseas so called logistics space in chibuti what we saw during this visit was a new pact with the solomon islands of some kinds which essentially has a security element to it which relates to policing although we heard a lot of uh statements from the chinese foreign minister saying that you know china would not be looking for an overseas military base of this kind but it is another step in china's security engagement in the region which in the past we had not seen so this is a shift in china's diplomacy and it's an expansion of uh, its theater of operation in the indo pacific so today as you can see china has a base in djibouti which is you know in the western indian ocean now we're looking at in the south pacific uh, china having greater security engagement with these island countries and it's not new this has been for it's been a long time coming there's been a long standing conversation about the fact that chinese engagement with this part of the world had been expanding and this will expand to some sort of security cooperation when the rioting happened in the solomon islands last year which targeted chinese interests and chinese citizens that rioting only ended up and it's you know when you had australian forces intervene uh, so you were seeing a shift that was taking place you were seeing a turn that's taking place and this to me is sort of the next step right in this broader indo pacific competition that we are seeing in fact mega i think you uh, were working on a piece recently where you make this argument right that it's uh, and you make this argument saying that you know it's not just a competition in the indo pacific but it's actually a zero sum sort of competition between the west with the united states at its forefront and china on the one side do you want to sort of expand on that argument yeah so my position is that uh, apart from you know expanding influence is also what you said this is also a zero sum game 
because China sees Pacific as its extended neighborhood and uh, Australia's influence has also been quite evident in Pacific. But what we see recently with the United States announcing they're reopening their embassy in Solomon Islands and President Joe Biden also is uh, participating in Pacific Island Forum. So we saw that United States is actively increasing their engagement in Pacific Island region. So as United States and Western Bloc tries to increase their influence, we'll see that there is some compromise in China's engagement and influence in Pacific. And we can see that very clearly in a recent visit only where China's, you know, Pacific Island countries couldn't agree on the security deal which China is supposed to sign, at least what China proposed. And also, there's supposed to be a joint statement, but that has not been agreed to yet. Uh, so you can already see some movement in this direction. And also, there's some competition flaring up regarding who can influence which country better. So... Fiji recently joined the Pacific uh, Economic Forum, but Fiji is also uh, in talks of some agreements via Pacific Island Forum with China. And I think uh, I saw some reports that Fiji's, I think, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, I don't remember, they gave a statement that Pacific Island is not anybody's backyard uh, that was supposedly hinted at United States. So what I see here is countries trying to hedge between United States at one side and China on the other side. And this is a classic yeah. rivalry example. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there is, uh, and that makes complete sense from a realist point of view, right? That uh, smaller states caught between this competition between great powers will try to hedge and will try to uh, eke out the maximum benefits. Now, from the Pacific Islands point of view, Geopolitics and security is one aspect of it and sort of traditional security is one aspect of it. But uh, the real challenge from their point of view is climate change. And I think one of the things that we've seen throughout this visit uh, and not just this visit, but also, you know, as soon as the new Australian government, the Labour government took charge in Australia, you had the Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong going to uh, Fiji and her speech over there also spoke about, you know, how and again, there is a parallel, right? I mean, even Wang Yi speaking uh, at the Pacific Island sort of foreign ministers meeting says two things, right? He said things like, you know, you don't need to be too anxious about China's engagement and China's rise. At the same time, he's telling them that, you know, look, we've heard you. We've heard your concerns. We are here to hear you. And I think something similar also you heard from Penny Wong, right? When she goes to Fiji and she says things like, look, we hear you. We understand your concerns. This is a different government. We are going to collaborate differently. And she talks about climate change quite a bit. So while there is this geopolitical wrangling for influence, you know, and one needs to go back to World War II to figure, understand the significance of some of these islands. But there's also this issue of climate change. While you can see these smaller countries hedge between bigger powers and you can see some drift closer to one or the other, you will also see, uh, you know, the real challenge and the real tragedy would be if the issues of climate change actually get sidelined amid all of this. You know, so that's sort of one of the things that I think is a challenge. I think the other thing to note is that Wangi's tour is a mixed bag in some ways. I mean, if you were to think of it from Beijing's perspective, there is a positive in that it's expanded China's footprint beyond sort of the economic partner of choice in some ways, right? I mean, China has been one of the biggest trading partners, has been one of the biggest grant givers, has developed a lot of... Uh, infrastructure in these countries, which obviously there's been a lot of criticism with regard to that, that, you know, that puts them in unsustainable debt and which is a different argument altogether. But for example, you know, today I was reading about Wangi's visit to Tonga uh, and the Tongan prime minister is quoted as saying that he is 
that it's wonderful to meet the visiting Chinese delegation in the country in the building that has been constructed by Chinese aid. So, you know, it's really interesting that these are things that last, you know, this sort of economic engagement has a impact on how countries essentially look at Chinese engagement. And I think that's something that the West needs to also take into account. Uh, and I think the IPEF, like you said, Fiji now being a partner of the IPEF, is an important instrument, right? You need to be economically engaged in this uh, part of the world. Uh, and while at one level, the Chinese side failed to push through what was a broad-based, uh, you know, economic and security agreement with the Pacific Island countries, there is some sort of a deal with the Solomon Islands, which covers things like security, right? I mean, the Chinese side published an eight-point consensus with the Solomon Islands which talks about law enforcement and security cooperation, strengthening policing capacity. And of course, all of this based on the request of the Solomon Islands, as they would say. But it talks about that. And that's a shift in how China is engaging in this part of the world. And I would assume that, you know, we will see more of this. Um, at present, from the, what the reporting tells us is that this broad-based agreement was basically scuttled once the, you know, president of the Federated States of Micronesia urge leaders of the other Pacific Island countries to not sign off on this proposal because his view was this is about, and I quote, access and control of our region with the result being the fracturing of regional peace, security and stability. So I think, you know, there are some, there are naysayers, but, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag for Wangi, but there's still, you know, two steps forward, one step back is how I look at what's happening with China's diplomacy in the region. Yeah, I mean, as you said, money is, money has been an important part and from Pacific Island countries' point of view, I can quite understand. I mean, if anybody gives you money for basic things, it's of course, it creates a good influence. Regarding engagement in Indo-Pacific economic framework, yeah, so Fiji has joined, of course, but the United States also needs to step up their economic engagement if they want to counter China's influence here. So United States and their partners like Australia and New Zealand also need to step up their game in Pacific Island region because China has been engaged in this region. Even diplomatic engagements have been going on for a while now. For example, in 2014 and 18, President Xi Jinping visited some of the countries in Pacific. But for a visit from United States at this level, it took them in 2021 when uh, Joe Biden participated in PIF. So that level of engagement has been also lacking. And apart from that, U.S. also needs to seriously consider taking more countries in uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework and, you know, try to counter China's economic influence there. Australia has been doing that for a while and Australia is one of the largest FDI provider to Solomon Islands. But other countries also kind of need to step up there. And furthermore, now that New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is on a visit to U.S., and they have highlighted their security concerns in the region in their joint statement. Uh, for example, and I quote here, the establishment of persistent military presence in the Pacific by the state that does not share our values or security interest would fundamentally alter the strategic balance of the region and pose national security concerns to both our countries. End quote. Uh, so uh, here it, it's clear that both US and New Zealand are worried about military and security implications of China's presence, but there also needs to be some action on economic front there. Yeah, I agree. I think it's in a way it's good that there is a recognition of the fact that, you know, there is a national security concern here, not just for New Zealand, but also for the United States and its interests. The challenge, however, is that, you know, if you are unable to provide 
a response at a development level, you end up limiting your ability to influence outcomes in the region. For example, once, you know, earlier this year when information leaked about this potential security pact between China and the Solomon Islands, you had, you know, the U.S. convener coordinator, the person in charge in the Biden administration for the Indo-Pacific Campbell visiting the Solomon Islands. Still, you've seen Solomon Islands go ahead with this agreement which is a measure of also the limitations and the you know, constraining of American influence. And I think if you go back to the Chinese uh, position paper that they released during Wang Yi's visit, it doesn't really mention security. It talks about some aspects of security, which is essentially in a non-traditional sort of way. But it looks at, you know, developmental assistance. And there's a wide range of, you know, developmental assistance that the Chinese are talking about, right? They're talking about things like, you know, a regular foreign ministers level meeting. They're talking about, you know, appointing a special envoy to the Pacific Island countries. They're talking about, you know, a specific economic development and cooperation forum, a routine agriculture ministers meeting. So they're talking about things like, you know, a maritime cooperation forum, a, you know, regular flights, expanding engagement at a government to government level by training, you know, government officials from that part of the world. They talk about scholarships, human resource training. Uh, there's a commitment of, you know, 2 million US dollars for an anti-COVID-19 cooperation fund. So there's a whole set of actions that the Chinese are committing to, which uh, if you were a leader in one of the Pacific Island countries, you would see it as important developmental objectives being supported. There needs to be something much more tangible from the West if it needs to compete from a development point of view also. It's all well and good to understand and note your secure, note the security concerns, but it's important to understand that addressing those security concerns require a comprehensive approach, which includes economic development, governance issues and things like that. And if you are unable to address those issues and whether the IPEF can address some of those, we'll, it'll, it remains to be seen. I mean, the IPEF is still quite loose, quite broad. It's about high standards, rules and frameworks. And that may not be something that necessarily attracts some of these countries, right? Uh, what may actually attract them is, you know, better services, better funding support, aid, partnerships, market access, all those sorts of things, which are very different and which in some ways Chinese are willing to provide, right? They are talking about, you know, supporting, you know, taking much more imports from these countries and things like that. So I think it's important for that sort of a broad-based answer from the West if it wants to compete in this region. So basically, China is pushing on the right buttons when it comes to us. In some ways, it is, right? And when it does the security cooperation bit, you can see that there is anxiety and there is pushback. That's why this broad pact does not go through because, you know, like, you know, the Pacific Island countries, they may be small countries, but they are independent sovereign states which have agency and which understand their interests. So you will see some sort of pushback because you don't want to become a theater for geopolitical competition. Now, unfortunately, your geography makes it such that you become some sort of a theater for geopolitical competition. So that's unfortunately the case, which also, like I said earlier, means that you end up not, you know, your core issues such as climate change end up getting sidetracked. But if you are able to leverage this geopolitical competition to meet your developmental goals or at least get greater input uh, and greater support for your developmental goals, then that's a fairly positive outcome for these countries, right? Uh, so, I mean, that's how I would look at it. And that's how most sort of, uh, I think, uh, 
smaller countries, medium-sized countries who are caught between great power rivalries will tend to look at it, you will hedge. But then hedging will have its limits, you know, because sooner or later, once your economic dependencies become much more severe, uh, and if they become much more severe, particularly in terms of your dependencies on one country or one, one side, um, it limits your room for maneuver that much more. So I think there's interesting times ahead for people in this region. And one only hopes that, you know, in all of this climate change again does not get shortchanged. Uh, yeah, this reminds me of this open letter kind of, I don't know if it was open letter, but it was made op- made available to public later. So president of uh, Micronesia wrote to Prime Minister Sogavre of Solomon Islands that uh, after this uh, deals of Solomon Island and China's security deal were leaked. Uh, so he wrote that uh, he fears that this deal is going to change the region and it's, this region will become an epicenter of great power confrontation. And this is, uh, this is something which other countries are worried about. It's not acceptable. So this concern is very clearly present among the leaders of those uh, you know, Pacific island countries. But as you said, sometimes even if you don't want to be there, your position makes you make, make some things inevitable. Yeah. This reminds me quad just, just to add to that, just to add to that, we are seeing, right? I mean, one of the ways in which, and there's a fascinating news in The Guardian by Vincent Nee, if I'm correct. And he writes that Chinese funding under BRI has essentially been focused on the home constituencies of political leaders in these countries, not so on the Indo-Pacific, but he, or not the sort of Pacific Island countries. But he basically says that in general, Chinese funding has been focused on the political leaders of countries and their home constituencies, which is, I, 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 that's not just, there is evidence to say that it's not just, you know, in terms of those central leadership, for example, in Sri Lanka, but it's also in terms of the local leadership where you are allowing local leaders, say in Pakistan, in different provinces to maintain their political clout by giving them funding, which they can channel towards all sorts of projects, good, bad, ugly, boondoggle projects, useful projects, so that they can remain in power and therefore their sort of association with Beijing also continues. So that's one way in which the Chinese cultivate elites in different countries. Now, if you think of it, if your dependence and your political survival as a leader in one of these countries depends on Chinese funding, you are much more amenable to then doing things even in a security domain, despite there being, you know, political differences at home among different parties. So I think that's also the challenge. That's why the West needs to sort of step up and do much more economically. Yeah. So I was wondering if this visit anyway in related to relation to Quad, because it just so happened that Quad, one of the most successful meeting of Quad leaders happened. And just after that, Wangi sends off to Pacific Island nations. Do they think that this region is slipping away from them? No, I don't think it's that that's the case. I mean, it's a, a, any of these visits, it takes time. It They don't happen, you know, in knee-jerk sort of reactions. I mean, if you want to look at sort of some of those immediate sort of reaction visits, I think post the Ukraine war, Wangi's visits to, you know, the Indian subcontinent. To me, those were sort of like, you know, quick reaction, particularly his visit to India. That's sort of a quick reaction look visit, which you can see was not necessarily well-planned, not necessarily well-announced. But here you can clearly see that there are some outcomes that have been planned. Some outcomes that have been badly planned because you actually ended up making a talking about a potential security pact and that pact didn't come through, which is actually a, a bit of a loss of face. You know, usually you see these visits by any country, particularly the Chinese who are very, who are sticklers for protocol. You see these visits uh, very well choreographed. You see agreements pre-agreed upon and, you know, signing them, agreeing upon them is a formality. For example, in the Solomon Islands case that you saw. 
So the fact that that broader agree- agreement didn't go through tells you about the challenges, but it also tells you that, you know, that this visit, a lot of this is pre-planned. It's not a reaction to the fact that the Quad is meeting and so immediately you're going. But I presume there is much more anxiety in Beijing about the IPEF, you know. Uh, I don't, I think they recognize the fact that it's not, you know, it's not a trade agreement. It's not yet, you know, the kind of deal that offers tangible gains, but it has a potential to become into something, you know. And I think that they are clearly mindful of. So I, I would say that the visit, I think, was obviously well planned. It's not necessarily a reaction to the Quad meeting and the success of the Quad meeting or not. But it's sort of a continuation of Chinese diplomacy. And the fact that these things come in close sort of in close timing with each other that one visit one sort of event happens after the other tells you a little bit about increasing diplomatic uh, and strategic value and of the Indo-Pacific as a region you know the fact that this is and the Indo-Pacific in its broad sense from South Pacific to the Western uh, Indian Ocean that entire region is your sort of theater for future for where the sort of contest for the future of the world order is being played out and this sort of tells you that, you know, that it's not uh, necessary. Europe is no longer the theater that it used to be, you know, pre the world wars and even post world, post the second world war. The future of the world order going ahead is going to be shaped by events in the Indo-Pacific. And the last couple of weeks tell us that. I was thinking about India's position in this whole scenario. Apart from being part of Quad, India's direct, I think, involvement in Pacific is not that much. So is there an implication for India from this whole I think there is an implication from the point of view that if you're going to see, firstly, the kind of agreements that you are seeing in the Pacific Island countries that the Chinese are proposing, the Pact with the Solomon Islands and this broad agreement that was proposed can be a template for a similar type of cooperation within the Indian subcontinent. So I think that's something that we have to be very mindful of. None of this needs to happen immediately in the context of a military base. These are gradual steps which begin with potentially policing and things like that and they expand. So it, it's important to keep in mind that is something that can happen. Secondly, it tells you about the expanding competence and reach of the PLNA, which again is something that we need to keep in mind, given that over the next decade, we are going to see a far more active PLA Navy in the Indian Ocean than it is already been. The third thing is that it tells you about the breadth of this contest in the Indo-Pacific, you know. So the Indian Ocean region is one part of that entire breadth of competition. So it also tells you that the United States, its resources are going to be required in many different areas and it will require partners to step up and do different things. So for example, you know, while Australia is an ally of the United States, India is not an ally in that conventional sense. So it requires it will require different levels of commitment from India, just like what the United States perhaps is going to be asking of Australia today, asking of New Zealand today. So India will also be required. There'll be much more, India will be called upon for much more as this contest sort of heats up. Finally, as a member of the IPEF, India is now committed in some ways to expanded economic cooperation through the sort of East Asia, South Pacific, uh, Western Pacific. It's expanded its theater of economic cooperation structurally through these mechanisms, which is a good thing. So you are going to be engaged in those places and you should be engaged in those places. So I think that, and again, we need, India needs to think about what are the strengths that it brings to bear. There is a tremendous amount of economic and developmental 
agenda that India can bring to the South Pacific. India has, uh, you know, sort of slightly has an interesting and a sometimes good, sometimes sort of difficult relationship with Fiji as one country. But India has a, a relationship with most of these countries, these countries. And I think that there is much more from a development point of view in terms of experience sharing, in terms of governance sort of practices and all of that that India can contribute. So again, there is a lot that India can do and India should do and it should be prepared to do while keeping from it on a developmental aspect, which are things that India is generally comfortable with doing. But on, from a security aspect, what this visit tells us is that there are templates of expanded Chinese security engagement in different parts of the world. And we need to be mindful of that because similar templates can be applied in our part. That's it for today, folks. Uh, thank you so much, Manoj, for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.